All right, ladies, I think I'm going to go ahead and get started. It's 11.14, and I think official start time is 11.10, so I don't want to put us too far behind. Because I know we all have like 10,000 extra things to squeeze in now before Thursday or tomorrow afternoon, Wednesday afternoon gets here. And all the weather that we're expecting. All right, let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, how good it is to come here and to be with our sisters in Christ. Lord, to discuss your word, to read your word, to have the privilege of and just the freedom to discuss it and to read it. And Lord, just to hear from you today, um, how we thank you for this word, abide and remain Lord, help us to abide in you. Help us to remain in you. May your word abide in us. And Lord, even from the study this week and the lesson this morning and discussion, may your word abide even more in us. We pray that you would give us clarity this morning and that you would teach us by your spirit of truth who you are and who Jesus is. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so we're in John 15 and 16 this morning, and I feel like there's no way to do this justice, so just know that there's things I'm going to just have to skip over because there's just not time. I trust that in your small groups, you've had lots of good discussion about those questions that came up this week. There's lots and lots and lots of application in these passages. Um, You know, I've what was it, two weeks ago, Dr. Young talked about how the book of John is like a Rubik's Cube. And I was thinking, you know, on the outside, the Rubik's Cube is what, primary color, just basic colors, right? But then it's a very complex thing. So again, the book of John is complex. It looks simple. But even this passage that's so familiar to us is really complex. And there's a lot of questions that come up, at least for me, um, in this passage. So chapter 15, we open up what commentators call part two of the farewell discourse. And if you look in verses one through about 16, I kind of consider that the first section here. And that section really has two parts to it. So about the first half, one through eight, and then nine through 16. Both of these parts, these two sections, speak of abiding in something, So the first section talks about abiding in this true vine or abiding in Jesus. And then the second part of it refers to remaining or abiding in his love. They both um, also see fruitfulness as the goal of a disciple. And both of these sections here tie fruitfulness to prayer. And then... Lastly, you're going to see between these two sections a transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. So the first part talks about the true vine, which would mean that there's an untrue, right, a false vine. Okay, so that's the first section. And then the second section um, talks about this change from being called servants to being called friends. So there's some commonality between these two sections of 1 through 16. I'm going to start in verse 1 and then... I won't get to read every verse. Um, All right, 15, verse 1. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. 
Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Now that right there is a reference back to chapter 13 with the washing of the feet a couple of lessons ago. Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So in verse 1, you have this imagery of the true vine, this Vineyard. Um, this idea of the vineyard is a common metaphor used in New Testament language, and it's really in many religious writings, ancient religious writings, whatever the religion is, they use a vineyard as a metaphor. We see in this verse 1 the last of the I am statements. So you filled that in on your table this week. Did you notice that this I am statement's a little different? It gives us a peek into the Father and, and His perspective, right? He is the vine dresser. So it's the only I am statement that tells us also something about the Father as well. And I'm sure that you know, and we looked at this in the homework, that um, in the Old Testament, the vine is a common metaphor for the nation of Israel, the covenant people of God. And in fact, we're going to turn to the book of Psalms. We'll look at the um, passage we looked at in the homework, chapter 80, in just a second. But you can look in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Hosea. It's all over Old Testament, this imagery of the vine being the nation of Israel. But what's interesting is that in the Old Testament, every time this metaphor is used, um, it's the lack of fruitfulness of the nation of Israel that is emphasized. And the judgment of God is threatened in each of those passages. So a contrast to what we're seeing here in the New Testament with this imagery. So let's go to Psalm, the book of Psalms, and we'll look at chapter 80. So in John, we're seeing Jesus represented as the true vine, the one to whom Israel pointed. So let's go to Psalm 80, and we'll look at a couple of verses here, starting in verse 7. The psalmist says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. That was the book of Exodus. You drove out the nations and planted it. We didn't quite get to that yet, Joshua. All right, down to verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So we start to see this son of man, which is what Jesus calls himself in the book of John. And also, this is all over Old Testament, Daniel especially. But we're starting to see that this vine points to the true vine, which is the Messiah who was to come. All right, let's go back to John 15. Um, keep in mind that 
the readers of the book of John initially would have been those Jewish Christians that were scattered in Asia Minor. And so this particular um, imagery here would be a reminder to them that it's not about being Jewish or about being rightly related to Abraham that's important, but what's important? Being rightly related to the true vine, which is Jesus himself. So Jesus is just declaring here that he fulfills everything that was required of Israel in the New Testament. That there's not two plans of redemption, like an Old Testament plan and a New Testament plan. There's one true vine throughout all of scripture. All right, so then we get to verse 2, and he starts kind of making some distinctions here about um, the branches. So God calls us in our sin, and he calls us to become fruitful. Left to ourselves, he says here, apart from me, you have, you can do nothing, right? So we have no power apart from the vine. When we get to these, this word fruit, which is used several times, this is a place where you start asking questions. What exactly does this mean if you have branches that are in the vine that are not bearing fruit and cut out? Like what is, this is where you go, oh, this is a familiar, oh, I know this passage. But then when you really start breaking it down, you think, what's really going on here? So my interpretation when I look at this is that this fruit, especially here at the beginning of chapter 15, if you notice, the fruit stems from the vine, right? So those branches that are bearing fruit, the fruit's coming from the branch, which is um, plugged into the vine. So obviously for me, I'm seeing this fruit as Christ-like character. It's the character of a changed life that's coming out. It's stemming from the vine to the branch and it's producing fruit. Um, now, a lot of commentators are very strong that know this absolutely has to do with new converts. And that's, that's it. That's what this means. Now, I think we'll get to some of that later on in this passage. But right here, I see that this overall is character that has been, it's a changed life. It's character that's stemming Christ-like character. Um, all right. So in verse two, there's also a warning about those that do not bear fruit. There's kind of a play on words here in the Greek. So if you look in verse 2, those who do not bear fruit um, are cut off. This word cut off is ario, A-R-I-O in the Greek. And the word for pruned is kathario. They're both cut, right? They're just cut in a different way. So you're kind of getting a little pun that's happening here. In fact, our word catharsis comes from kathario. It's K-A-T-H-A-R-I-O. Similar words. Um, if you've been to a vineyard, you've seen the rows and rows and rows of, of the, the vines. He talks about here that there are branches that are cut. So the vine dresser back then, I don't know how much machinery is involved now, but back then the vine dresser would walk down the rows and he would either be cutting off branches, which are not bearing fruit, gathering those up, they're tossed in the fire, or he would be walking down and delicately pruning, even though that's painful sometimes, Right pruning those vines, those branches that are bearing fruit. Um, there's a, ba- a debate, like we said, about what does this cutoff actually mean? And how are these branches in the vine, but then they're cut off because they're not bearing fruit? The book of John is very clear. The saints will persevere. God's people will persevere to the end, meaning you cannot lose your salvation. If you have it, you cannot lose it. God does not let go of his own. So then we have to figure out if that's what John says. And in fact, in chapter 17, in a couple of weeks, we'll get to that a little bit more. Um, what is happening here then with these branches that are cut off? 
I, what I see from the things that I've read and studied and just my own interpretation is probably for us, the application is that this is a picture of the visible church. So this is the us but the whole entire Church of Grace of Man, but the universal church, right? It's the people that you see that appear to be part of this body. Now, Jesus has used language uh, like this before. You had the weeds among the wheat, right? You had the parable of the seed, so the four types of seed that are tossed, and one of them grew up quickly, but then it withered away. So what I see from Jesus' previous teaching, what we can pull out from other Gospels is that this is kind of like the seed that grew up quickly, these people that are cut off. They're part of the visible church, but not necessarily really in Christ, not truly converted people. Think about these disciples, because the church wasn't around yet. Who was a part of their little band of guys that appeared to be part of the group, but was cut off? Judas, right? So I think this has application for them, and and we can see that, but also direct application for us as well. All right, so we see down towards the end here in verse 8. Let's see. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. And right above that, the verse verse 7, we see that, let me just read that. If you abide in me... And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So our fruitfulness depends on a couple of things. It depends on our abiding in him. And it depends on his word abiding in us. So the closer we are to Christ, the more fruit we bear. But how do we get closer to Christ? Is that all about experience? No. What does this say? It's about his word abiding in us. The other word for abiding that's used often in another translation is remaining. So it's knowing his word, meditating, memorizing. It's ask yourself, is his word at home in my heart? That's kind of how I think of it, dwelling in me. When I hear his word, do I kind of go, I don't like that? Or is it at home? Is it, does it abide? That's how, how I think of this word abiding. Um, all right, so... Starting in verse 9, he's going to leave three things with them. And let me ask you, what did he leave at the end of chapter 14? Flip back to 14, verse 27, I think it is. <clears throat> peace. He left peace last week with them. That's, that's good. Dr. Young taught on that too, right? We're getting this from all sides. It's great. <laughs> I just hope I don't say anything that is wrong. And then he contradicts it next week when he teaches somewhere in here. All right, so he left peace. In this last section, or this next section, he's going to leave his love. He's going to talk about joy that he's leaving. And then, hatred. What a contrast. So, peace, love, joy, hatred. All right, let's look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I I would love to read the rest of that, but I think for time's sake we won't. All right, so he says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Do you hear the, the tense of that verb? 
those verbs, has loved, had, like as if it's already happened. He's viewing the cross as a completed thing. He has the cross in view. It's a done deal. He has loved. I have loved. Um, the father, we get from this too, the father loves them too. So that's, that's good for them to know. We haven't heard this type of intimacy with the father yet in the book of John. And we also get that, the sense here that even though the father loves them, Jesus is still the mediator, which is comforting, at least for me when I think about that. All right, so this word <clears throat> abide, where he talks about abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. We have to figure out what does this mean. Um, somehow, however much God's love is gracious and undeserved, our continued enjoyment of it to some degree rests on our response to it. So what does he say? If you love or if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Flip back to chapter 14 for a minute. Verse 15, similar statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Jesus has used language all along that a tree is known by its fruit. So this language of fruit, it's all over Jesus' speaking, at least for these guys it was speaking. Um, A tree is known by its fruit. So when we look at this passage about obedience, what is that? Obedience simply validates the love that is already here. Okay, it's not something that justifies you. It's just an overflow of the love that you already have in here that's abiding, that you're abiding in. You can go to 1 John if you want to look at that later. He, John explores that a little more in another book. Um, all right, so as we look down a little bit further, um, verse 11, he says, he's spoken these things so that, his, so that our joy might be um, full and that he's leaving his joy for them, with them, with these guys, and with us as well. Um, the last part of this, starting in verse 12, he has a new commandment for them. Love one another as I've loved you. And how did he love them? He laid down his life for them. So he's giving them this new commandment. I'm going to read um, verse 15. Let's skip down to that. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. He's calling them friends. So here we have a transition from being servants to now being called friends. In scripture, we know that Abraham and Moses were both called friends of God. We know that Jesus called Lazarus a friend. But when I looked back at several passages about with this word friend, because we think a friend is, you know, her buddies, right? If you look back through scripture where this word friend is used, you will never find it used in the opposite direction, where a man calls God his friend. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wouldn't be the best friend we could ever have, right? But I think that our take on this word friend is like, oh, let's go hang out and be friends. And I think that kind of brings it down a notch from what he's saying here. It's, it's a, that's more of a demeaning. It's not the friendship type of thing that we think of with friendship. So in scripture, I'll say that again, Moses, Abraham, Lazarus are called friends of either God or Jesus. But in scripture, you never see a man calling God his friend. Does that make sense? Okay, I wanna make, you choose my words carefully. 
Um, all right, so then as we move a little bit further, verse 16, he gives a little reminder that while you are my friends, I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So don't be puffed up because I'm calling you friends. I chose you and I'm, in the, one, I'm the one in charge here. I've, I've chosen you for a reason. And this verb actually here for um, um, set apart or appointed usually has a personal object. And so when we get to this word fruit, let me just read a little bit further. <clears throat> that you should, let's see. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So the fruit here, because there's usually a personal object that goes with this verb set, up, set apart or appointed, probably has to do with their ministry that's coming. Um, there's more of a tone of there's a purpose in this setting apart and this appointment. Um, and for them, that would be building the church. And that's where this idea of new converts comes in with fruit. So perhaps here with this fruit that they're supposed to bear, there is maybe more of a tone of their action in leading people to Christ and building the church. But back at the beginning of 15, I think it's a little more general of our Christ-like behavior and character that comes out. All right, the last part here, starting in verse 18, contrasts to what we've just looked at. He says in 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Do you remember how many times I said that the word cosmos for a world is used in Chapters 13 to 17, 40 times. And I feel like half of them are right here in these first three verses, 18 to 21. So it's 40 times. It's just the created moral order that we all were once a part of and have been taken out of, although we still physically have to live here. So following Jesus has a cost. And for these guys, there would be no surprises after this little passage and then the passage at the end of 16. Um, And then in 1 John, you can look at that later too. He talks several times about this persecution and this hatred from the world. We should really all be cognizant of the fact that we were once rebels, children of wrath, part of the world, part of the cosmos. And God, not because we're better or more superior, but he took us out of that. He chose us and took us out of that. Um, And really that's, that's where I think a lot of the hatred that the world has, it's, it's that allegiance to Christ. That's what they hate. That's really what they hate. I think Um, that, that, that total allegiance to this person, this authority and this person that I love, I'm completely compelled to know and abide in. All right, so he refers back really quickly here to chapter 13. He says that a servant's not greater than his master. But when we looked at that in chapter 13, that had to do with service and ministry. And now it has to do with persecution. Just a little bit different take on that. Um, Let me read just a little further down. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, 
they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He's talking about these, this hatred, this world who hates them. Do you, do you remember back at the end of chapter 9, or you can flip there not now, the blind man had been healed. Jesus was talking to the blind man, blind man and then the Pharisees kind of jumped in, and it was this whole back and forth of who's really blind and then why they were really guilty. This kind of has the same kind of tone there, kind of same type of wording. Um, Jesus' presence in the world brings out a couple of things. I think, number one, it's their preference for the darkness rather than light. Their rejection of his revelation, Jesus, and just their outright rebellion against God. So we, he's, Jesus is talking about that here. We saw it also at the end of chapter 5, chap, end of chapter 9, both of those. And I would like to read verse 25. But the word that is written in their law, notice he says their law. Who are we talking about? Who is this world right now that he's talking about? The Jewish nation, right? But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. As I wrote this lesson, I looked up this phrase without a cause. It's the word Dorian in Greek, D-O-R-E-A-N. I feel like this is the nugget out of the whole lesson for me that I just went, ah. Okay, so this little phrase here, turn to Romans. I did a word search on this. Chapter 3 of Romans. All right, verse 24. Okay, so the word is Dorian. It's without a cause is how it's translated in chapter 15 of John. Romans 3, 24. Let me read that. I'll probably start in 22. See if you can find the word Dorian in verse 24. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption of that is in Christ Jesus. All right. Dorian, Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. The same word is used in verse 24. Translated differently, but it's the same word. So Jesus is hated without a cause. Anybody want to just take a wild guess in verse 24 what they think it is? Who said that? If I had a door prize, I would. <laughs> Gift. Look at verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift. We are justified without a cause. Jesus was hated without a cause. We are justified without a cause, meaning no cause in us, no reason inside of us. There was a cost, right? Jesus' life. He was hated without a cause, and therefore we are justified without a cause. I love that. That's the gospel. I, I wish that I would tell myself that every single day. First Corinthians 5.21, he took the one who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. We need to hear that every, all throughout the day. We need to remember that and to, to tell ourselves that. <clears throat> Verse 26, we get a little bit of insight into the Holy Spirit. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Why did the world hate Jesus? 
Or why did the world hate these men? What did he say? They're going to hate you because of me, right? That's what Jesus said. Then we get down to verse 26, and this is awkward. Why are these verses here? They don't flow from verse 25. Why does he all of a sudden start talking about the Holy Spirit right here? We have to figure out why this fits. Well, the reason I think that I see that it fits is that Jesus is saying, when the persecution comes, I'm going to be gone. But they're still going to hate you because this Holy Spirit is going to be in you and will bear witness of me. If you look up in the previous section, starting in 18, the hatred came from their hatred of Jesus, right? They were hating Jesus. Well, guess what? They will be bearing witness of Jesus. So the hatred's still going to be there through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit bearing witness of him. All right, chapter 16. We'll, um, let's look at verses 1 through 4 first. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So their greatest danger is to fall away. And so Jesus is going to tell them these things in order to prevent that. Certainly this, this, this verse here about the synagogues, that came true. We know from Paul's own writings that prior to his conversion, his reason for persecuting the church was he said it was service to God. The same, same wording here. Um, so these, he also says here that they think that they know the Father, but they don't know me. We've seen that in chapter 5, chapter 9. We've seen this all throughout the book of John, that they think they know God, but they don't know him. All right, then at the end of verse 4, he says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, which, by the way, that means I won't be with you forever. Verses 5 and 6, Jesus, it's like this, Kathleen talks about this um, kind of a contradiction. Let me just read it. But now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Um, I'm not going to go into the explanation. Look back in your homework. She does a pretty good job of relating that back to chapters 13 and 14 and what the contradiction is. Um, Whatever the case, clearly the disciples are grieving at this point. They're starting to feel some of what's going on and maybe about to come. Verse, um, let's see, verse seven. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the helper's coming. Jesus says it's to your advantage that I go because he's coming. Does that mean that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can't minister together on earth? Absolutely not. It's because there are many prophecies that have to be fulfilled and to usher in this eschatological time of the kingdom of God. So the Holy Spirit's got to come. The death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus Christ have to happen. So that's why he's saying, I have to go, but it's for your, to your advantage. Um, we'll skip down to verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the role of the Holy Spirit is explained here. He's also told that the Holy Spirit is going to glorify him 
And really, essentially, in this passage, she's just saying, as far as the Trinity goes, we're all in this together, right? So Jesus is God's final self-expression. And so he's saying, the Holy Spirit will also glorify me, just as the purpose of all of us, right? Everybody here, that's our purpose. You got to this passage, 16 to 24, pretty easy, right? We understand, as I said, birthed children. (laughs) We get that. There's, the disciples are a little confused at first about this phrase, in a little while. Um, but Jesus uses the analogy of a woman giving birth and how there's pain and anguish. And especially back then with natural birth, there would have been lots of, I mean, and you're in a dirty place too, to top it all off, right? Your home or wherever you were, it's not clean. So for me, that's like, you know, I would be afraid. All right, so anguish, sorrow, pain initially, but then there's joy. And the joy, you'll have it, it will remain, Right? He says, if eventually or ultimately your hearts will rejoice in the end. Um, if you get, if you'll flip over later to chapter 20, verse 22, uh, there's sort of a, it's almost imagery back to creation where Jesus breathes on the guys and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. So you have, and that's John 20, 22. So you have almost this dawning of a new creation that's about to take place. And their joy will be full, right? They will have joy and they will rejoice in the end. Um, He says at the very end there in verse 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay. Um, And in in the end, they're not going to be asking of Jesus. They're going to be talking to the Father. And that's new for them because up till now, they've been talking to Jesus about things. So again, we're seeing that intimacy with the Father that they've not really experienced just yet. Verse 25, I said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Do you remember with the Pharisees, he said, you think you know God, but you don't believe me, right? You didn't believe Moses, therefore you don't know me. And you don't know the Father. So he says here in verse 27, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. So he's, he knows. He knows their hearts, right? He knows what's going on. Um, however, something strange happens here in verse 29. The disciples speak and they say, now we get, now we know, right? All of a sudden, they finally get it. Okay, well... Do they? We don't really know. I mean, maybe, maybe they're being honest. Maybe they really finally do get it. But there's some sort of pretense going on here. Because if you look down in verse 31, Jesus rebukes them. So again, he knows their hearts. And we don't. Um, maybe at this point they finally did get it. But there's something going on else in their hearts. He rebukes them. He's already told Peter previously about his impending failure. And all of these disciples now, now are going to be forced to face their fears that they are, in fact, going to be scattered. And it's a temporary scattering. They will eventually come back together. But he does end here with, once he tells them they're going to be scattered, look down to verse 33. He leaves some encouragement for them. 
I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So I kind of almost see an extension of the vine metaphor where he says that in me you may have peace. So remember there weren't chapters and verse numbers and all that. It's almost like we're ending this passage right here with more of the vine metaphor. In me you'll have peace. This word world is mentioned again, and that in the world you're going to have tribulation. But he encourages them with, I have overcome the world. So it's like this hatred and persecution from the world is really pointless, powerless, because I win. And I'm telling you that in the end, you will rejoice. Um, In today's world, you know, I've just had those, well, I think it's between two and 400. They haven't said for sure. No one knows for sure. The guys who were, well, not all guys, women, children that were just kidnapped last week, Christians um, from Syria, or the week before that, the 21 men that were kidnapped in Egypt that were beheaded. You talk about tribulation. I mean, we look at that and we go, I don't know how they can, how can their families handle that? How can they, why do they not say, no, I'm not a, you know, let me convert. Well, it is the grace of God. It's his Holy Spirit that gives them the grace to, to bear that, um, to bear that cross, really, that tribulation. For us, we have persecution. It's in a different form. So we don't want to look at that and say, well, we don't have, you know, we have no persecution. We do have some. It's in a different form. But I think this is for us. We should, we should pray for them, shouldn't we? Should we pray for them that they would take heart and know that Jesus has overcome the world? We should pray for them. that They should be on our hearts. But we also look around us in our own church family at things that are going on that we might could call persecution or in our country, um, our local area, we need to be encouraged that Jesus overcame the world. We should be praying for others, whether it's here or there, that they would know and be encouraged that Jesus overcame the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is good. Lord, your word is... um, fulfilling. May your word abide in us. Lord, we lift up those who have recently been kidnapped. We lift up their families. God, we pray that you would offer them encouragement and comfort. Lord, that you would give them the grace to know that you have overcome the world and to know that in the end they will rejoice. We ask that in those situations, Lord, it's hard for us to pray for our enemies. It's hard for us to pray for the guys that are doing these evil and malicious things. God, help us to pray for our enemies. Help us to pray that through this, that you might have one like Paul who is converted. Lord, that you might use the things that are going on to bring glory to yourself, that you might use that to turn many many Muslim hearts to yourself to turn them away from their false God. Use these things that are happening somehow or don't let them just be idle, um, evil things, but use them for your glory and to make yourself known in the hearts of people around the world. Lord, in our own, um, in our own lives here, we pray that you will use us to encourage others to pray God, just um, embolden us to bear fruit, whether it is through leading someone to Christ or it's in our Christ-like behavior. Whatever that fruit is, Lord, 
May we bear fruit um, by abiding in you, Lord. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.